Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. While we continue to cover events in Israel-Palestine and particularly with Voices in Gaza, we have continued to put out other podcasts on the Tortoise Shack feed for you, dear members. And that means if you refresh your Tortoise Shack feed right now, there are podcasts with Green Party Councillor and former Lord Mayor of Dublin, Hazel Chew, on Irish politics, local elections and some more world events. And a great conversation with UCC senior lecturer Sharon Lambert on the outputs and her verdict on the results of the Citizens' Assembly for Drugs. They're available right now on patreon.com forward slash tortoiseek. If you are not a member, I'd really love you to join us. It's the only way we keep these mics on, the lights on and the bills paid. The few quid you give us carves out the space we need to continue to have the conversations like the one you're about to listen to. We have no ads, we have no sponsors, I'm not going to do a live read to recommend some Sky show to you, nor am I going to pretend that I want you to watch Premier League football. We have none of that nonsense, and because we don't, we don't have to bow to corporate interests or editorial control. But the only way we can keep that independence is if you chip it in and pay it forward and keep it free for everyone. So one more time, please join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. I'm Gareth Mulvenna and as usual I'm joined by Sam McElwain. How are you Sam? I'm not too bad Gareth, how are you doing today? Um, out of breath, had to run downstairs due to technical difficulties so as you say I'm sitting in the broom cupboard tonight um, with a monkey hanging behind me so it's not not ideal but um, yeah at least the sound's better down here. Yeah and it's been a busy day for us, this is what the second or third time we spoke today. And it is a lot going on. And there's been a day job to fit in between all that, so yep. yeah. <laughs> and after this as well, unfortunately. But yeah. anyway, no, so tonight we're joined by Emma Shaw. Um, Emma's the director of the Phoenix Education Centre, and she's a loyalist community activist. And I've had the pleasure of working with Emma before on Her Loyal Voice. So thanks a lot for making the time, Emma, and uh, cheers for coming on to Shrapnel. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Hi, Emma. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Well, I suppose just to kick things off, Emma, tell uh, me a wee bit about yourself and about you know your community background for people who maybe don't know much about how you came to be a loyalist community activist. Uh, so born and raised in East Belfast and left school at 16, had my son at 17 and really didn't think much about education, to be to be honest. I thought it was a bit of piece of paper at that time. Uh, went straight into work. Um, and gradually, as I kind of built up my experience, started to understand that actually, no, I do need that little bit of paper to get up any higher than sort of supervisory level. And, and it created some sort of, I want to say like inner turmoil, because I was like, I can't give up my job to go back to school. You know, it was that kind of catch 22. And I seen a lot of that within my my community. Um, I started volunteering at different events, um, started becoming more actively involved in like women's groups and things like that. Um, and then it wasn't really that was kind of um intermittent, I guess, would be the best word, because then I went on and had another child and you know, all of all of that. Um it wasn't really until I was made redundant, probably for like the second or third time in a row, I went, right, do you know what? This is this is my time to go back to school. This this is my time. What am I going to do? What does that look like? 
Um, and I had the opportunity then to go went to Queen's um, and studied my degree. And it was really then, I had grown up, I had always thought, I don't want nothing to do with politics. Politics here is horrendous. Like, nothing gets done. You know, one of, that was my kind of mindset. Um, and when I went to Queen's, I ran to be a student um, counsellor. I don't even know why I came. I don't even know why. It was something to do with we were we were trying to get feminine hygiene products or something. And I was like, right, I'm going to do this. So I ran for a student council, got on to council, stayed on council for two years, then became the faculty rep and school rep. And I actually thought, do you know what? I actually like this. <laughs> um, this like we can actually get things done if we work together. Um, and my degree, I started as a history student and transferred in politics. <laughs> Again, I don't know what possessed me, but anyway, um, and through so that was my sort of formal side. Like informally, then I was working on community groups. So I volunteer with East Belfast Football Club. I'm on the committee there, and so. I really could see firsthand, you know, how the deprivation that was going on, not just in my area, because I had been so focused on the area that I, like the wee small area where I was living, I wasn't really thinking about East Belfast in its breadth, if that makes sense. Um, And so through all those work and networks, I kind of was like, right, more needs to be done, more needs to be done. But again, you know, sometimes when you're just getting on with the day-to-day things, and by that time, you know, I had two kids, I was a single mom, I was running a house, I was going to school, trying to have money and, the, you know, p- to pay for holidays and school things. So sometimes you're just struggling to survive. <laughs> and then once I got to uh, sort of like the middle of my journey at Queen's, there was all of these academics saying working class Protestants aren't interested in education. And I was like, no, that's not my experience. Like the the men's groups that I worked with, the community groups that I worked with, everybody was like, I really want my kid to do well at school. You know, that was the whole mentality. But I was really interested, well, is that just my experience or is that, you know, a wider, a wider issue? And so I approached one of my professors at Queen's and I was like, I really actually want to know what people on the ground are saying, because that's the voice that's missing from from all of the research. All of the research was academics interpreting like GCSE data, which is flawed in itself, but we'll not go into we'll not go into that. But I was really interested in what young people had to say as to why they didn't go into further and higher education. What was their barriers? So individually for me, my barrier was obviously financial. So I had that bias kind of in my in my own head and I was like, right, let's quantify this and then, you know, let's advocate for more scholarships or that type of initiative. But actually, so when I spoke to John, he was like, yeah, yeah, let's let's do this as your final project. You know, that's great. I'll be your supervisor. And I approached six post-primary schools in East Belfast. Of the six, three agreed to take part. And of the three, I got 546 responses from young people. The questions were very much formulated around um, countering the claims that were in the media. So around goals, aspirations, supported home for education. So 98% of the young people that responded were actually saying, no, I do feel supported at home. My mum encourages me to do my homework. She attends parent-teacher meetings. Um, but then what they also said was, I don't see anybody that looks like me that goes to university. I don't know what univ- I, I don't know what I would do. 
I don't know what university is. University is more school. That's not interesting to me, right? And so there's this real disconnect between getting young people, especially first in college sort of um, generation, to understand that university is not the same as school. You have a lot more variety, a lot more breadth. You, you can talk a lot about a lot of different topics. It's not in school where you're expected to have one answer to pass an exam. For me, university really opened up those conversations and expands your mind in terms of having a debate. You know, like, for example, in my school, we maybe got five questions that we could choose, but we could interpret those questions however we wanted. You know, so it was all really, it was very different experience for school. You just, if you don't say the right thing, you're marked up. And I think we really need to to help our young people better understand that. But we need to also give them the opportunities to improve their educational attainment because right now 35% of our young people especially boys going into first year and this is East Belfast but it's also working class areas um, have a really poor literacy rate and it's a literacy rate of around age 8 so there's something fundamentally wrong with the school system and I have a lot of time and respect for schools don't get me wrong I know they are under a lot of pressure with budget cuts um, and and curriculum and things like that but we shouldn't be trying to put everything in schools and so based on all of that sort of experience that then led me to think well what can I do what's my part to play in this um and that led me to found Phoenix Education Centre but I had a kind of a little bit of imposter syndrome because even though I had all of this experience and all of this knowledge I was like, well, who's going to listen to me about education if my degree's in politics? So I went and did a master's in education policy because I was like, I need to justify why I, and I think that that's my working class background, is that I always feel like I have to justify why I can be in the room to speak on a subject. And I don't know if it's because I'm a female and working class, but I know I've been in a room with a professor before, and and this was way back 2015, And my first project, I was talking about Brexit and the voting, like what that looked like. Um, And I was asked to present at a panel and I was super nervous first year at uni. And the professor says to me, why would you be nervous? This is your research. You know this better than anybody else in the room. And I was like, right, I get that. I, I know that. But still, like, it, like, I just didn't have that confidence. And I, I, now that I've done more research and education's my field, I do feel com- comfortable in speaking. But I still do sometimes get that I'm only a wee girl from down the road. Like I grew up in a free school me family. My mom, like we didn't have anything, you know. Like I, I grew up in a, in a in a council house, and I still live in a housing estate. And so, but I'm not I'm not ashamed of where I've come from. But I want to see more young people like that have a background like me to also think that they can do these things. Because in that research piece that I done, young people were saying they have all these aspirations and all these dreams, right? But the big thing for them was, like I said, that peer pressure, they don't see anybody that looks like them. That's not really financially that we can change that. That's societal change and that's supporting grassroots community initiatives. And so all of that experience led me to find Phoenix Education Centre, which is a non-profit, so we're social enterprise, uh, and we're based on the Woodstock Road in East Belfast. So we have run a couple of different pilot projects, such as after school clubs, 
Um, we've done a community education um, provision survey to see what people wanted to see in the area. So we've done on the back of that, we've actually done a sign language course. Um, and then we're starting an essential skills literacy course here in January in partnership with Belfast Met. And so it's really about, you know, drumming on, drumming on and, and trying to get things done. But the big thing for me as well is I find it that now I have a board of directors. Obviously, that's our governance structure. So we do have a, a other directors on the board. Um, but being the new kid on the block and trying to attract funding in a COVID era was hugely, hugely challenging. And I feel like a lot of other big charities in the group in the in the area that have been established for you know twenty five thirty years have tried to sew up the market and don't let don't like anybody coming in to to you know be the new kid on the block, even though you might have different ideas and different approaches. And there is enough people in poverty for every group to have work. Um, but that's just some of the challenges. But it really just drives me on. And then within the community, I've been involved in a number of different projects. Um, Gareth mentioned her loyal voice and um, I've put some research on there and I've written a few pieces on the blog there. Um, and then I have been involved in other pieces of work and I'm involved in pieces of work at the moment um, around cultural identity, uh, specifically around bonfire work and working with at-risk youth um, who are quite often demonised. Um, and, and we're trying to work with them to expand what the, their opportunities are. Can I just, I mean, it's really fascinating there where you talk about the idea that basically formed your research, the idea that working class Protestants aren't interested in education, they don't value it. Um, when, I, when I did my PhD in Queens back 15 years ago, that was the topic that my uh, supervisor, Graham Walker, told me to explore in a historical sense, you know, the idea that because there was industry in Belfast particularly, yeah. uh, there was little value placed in education. But what you actually find when you dig into the lived experience, the histories, um, the testimonies from the time and, and people who, who went through that sort of system, well, actually, education was a fundamental part of that. Even if you were in an industry, you still had to go to tech. You still had to, to learn the trade, basically. And then I also looked at the example of Orangefield, you know, where David Irvine had gone to school, Van Morrison, Brian Keenan. So you had these sort of little sort of signposts there for historians that if they wanted, they could they could look into the past and see the Protestants did value education. It reminds me of that argument that, you know, working class Protestants and loyalists don't value the arts. They're not represented in the arts. Whereas if you look through the thread of history, Working class Protestants in Northern Ireland are often at the forefront of the arts. They're some of the best writers um, and playwrights, thinking even recently of Beano and, and the work he's doing with, on the life of David Irvine. So for me, it's it's interesting that you talk about that because I know that there are academics who look at the raw data, they draw conclusions from that without actually going to the people uh, and, and trying to find out more about the lived experience. So I find it really encouraging because 15 years ago, when I was doing this research, when I was trotting around East Belfast and talking to people like Jordy Newell and people like that, he was frustrated at, at that disconnect. And also, I think it's almost like a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, because if you tell someone that enough, then they just believe that it must be true. And then it recalibrates the way they live their life. How, uh, do you find that to be the case, Emma? Especially when we're talking about young boys, right? So if we look at the examples of bonfire builders and the negative portrayal in the media, 
about what they must be, right? I don't know about you guys when you were teenagers, but when I was a teenager, I was no angel. Thankfully, there was no social media. There was no mobile phones, right? So that was a good thing. But we are telling these young boys that they're troublemakers, that they're all of these different things. And you're right, it does become that self-fulfilling prophecy because if they have no educational standard to, to be able to get a job, which a lot of those traditional routes and those traditional industries in East Belfast, like going to the shipyard, going to the docks, going to the mills, they're all gone for the most part. Now, obviously, we've got more work coming into the shipyard. But the big problem there is we now have educational barriers almost within apprenticeship roles because you have to have your grade C or above in math or English. And some schools, some young people just can't attain that in a school setting, in that sort of examination setting. It doesn't mean that if you take them out and you give them a different educational framework to work that, you know, that they wouldn't achieve. But that then means well, they can't go and work in the shipyard or they can't get into tech to study those traditional apprenticeship roles. So we're really letting young people and kids down when it comes to that self-fulfilling prophecy by not supporting them. And I read your work because I actually quoted you in my dissertation. <laughs> I was like, Thank yes, you. who is this guy, Garth? Because I really get what he's saying. <laughs> Glad to hear it. <laughs> You're the one who read it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's what I was coming around to. Somebody read it. That's, that's yes. a relief to me. Yes. But uh, I think I actually referenced you in a few points too but I think as well and and once you mentioned about the arts that's really interesting because I was um Bino had asked me to speak on a panel last week in, at Endler and there was a few females in the room and one of them was from an arts background and she was like I have tried to approach groups about doing arts and Protestants just don't seem to be interested in it and I was like well let's have a conversation afterwards because that's not the case let me know how you're addressing it like let me know and I do think what we are very, or what is a challenge for us? And I don't know if it's unique to us or it's because we're a post-conflict society or it's just, we are this way. But I do think that we're very hesitant of outsiders. We're very hesitant to, you know, it's almost like that once bitten, twice shy. Somebody almost has to vouch for you before you can go into space. Somebody needs to know what you're about. Somebody needs to know, who is this person asking all these questions? Why are we going to, because we've, We've burned our soul before for people who have promised us the world and said they're going to get us all of these fantastic things to help us address deprivation in the area or to help us do X, Y, and Z. And they don't. And so, like, whenever I was speaking to principals, especially when I was trying to get their buy-in, not only for my research, but also when I was setting up the education centre and starting to do projects and wanting to, you know, can your school send this out? Can we tag you in this? You know, that sort of relationship. Um, even principals were like, well, who are you? Like, we get res- we get requests from Australia because somebody wants to research working class Protestant boys because they're underachieving. So I kind of understand why so many groups would be insular and would be hesitant of outsiders because it's almost like, well, we're sharing our experiences and you'll have heard me say this on other platforms, people need to be paid for their time, right? I'm not saying you shouldn't have volunteer and charity shops and things like that, but for the most part, working class people are not valued for their education or their knowledge or their experience. Bigger charities, bigger institutions will tap into that knowledge and ask those working class groups to share their experiences but they don't compensate them for that. And I'm not saying that needs to be financial, but there needs to be some recognition that 
working class people are inputting into, you know, what whatever it happens to be, because people need to be paid for their work. You, you've yeah. made a really good point. Sorry, Sam, just before you jump in there, it just before it goes out of my head, you've made a really good point there. And it's something I encountered, thick, not so much for the PhD research, but when I was doing the stuff about the, the troubles and the paramilitaries, the thing I found was research fatigue in places like the Shankill and East mm-hmm. Belfast, where people had come in, had, um, and jo- John, John Barry actually, uh, Came up with a really he was good my supervisor, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he called it vampire research, you know, where people come in and draw the lifeblood from the community and then disappear and don't feed back the results. So for me, it was important to bring people along to get to know them. And look, it can be exhausting for a researcher to have to do that. But I think if you're genuinely interested in the subject, if you're empathetic and, and, and care about the community that you're researching, you'll take that time. And you'll you'll give the people that you're researching with, even if like myself, you're not able to pay people for the time, but at least you're giving them ownership of the process. Yeah, and you're taking them along with you, and then being able to make the findings accessible, which for me was getting a paperback rather than a, a sort of library book. So yeah, just something you said there echoed and reminded me to say that. Sorry, Sam. No, I was just going to veering up on the same sort of vein. Growing up around there, you sort of felt you lived in a zoo. People were coming all the time to have a look at you in, in your natural habitat and they were picking apart your life and they were going away as anthropologists and explaining to the world, this is the species called the loyalists and this is how they live. You know, it it, it really does feel like that sometimes. Yeah. And it's the same with the buses and the tours that come up and down the Shankle. I mean, I, I'd, I'd be up at the Shankle a few times a week and even if I'm taking my mum to Iceland, they're, they're at the Biardo sort of memorial bit there and they're, and they're all talking, they're looking, I'm like, this is our home. Do you have to do this here now? Do we, do we need to do we need to do it now? On the other side, I know that we're educating people to what our lived experiences are and the history that we have in the area. But it just sometimes feels like like that. And I've grown up through the stages of being in community groups and all the rest of it, and people coming in and they're asking you the questions and they've got the questionnaire on their clipboard and they're asking you all the bits and pieces. And you're like, how many times have I got asked answer the same question here? I mean, there was a guy here two years ago who'd done the exact same questions. Can you not look at his research? It 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 just sort of bleeds in. But what I was going to go back to, Emma, was you're, you're, you were saying about going to Queen's and not seeing somebody there that looked like you. I mean, I was the same. I mean, I, I my mum always said that I was going to go to Queen's and I was going to do a degree. I was, I, was the, I was the hope for the family as such. But I didn't feel confident to do that. You know, I, I, was, leaving, I was leaving school and I was going off to shorts because that's where people like me went. We got, we got a trade and we worked our way through the trades and that, that was what happened. And it's later on you find out, you know what, I should have went to Queen's. I should have done that that bit of research or that bit of work and got that bit of paper. So and I, and again, it's not just about finance, but it's the financial confidence. Does that make sense? It's it's knowing that you can afford to do it. Yeah. And, and I've I've looked at it in later years going back and doing something myself. But every year I look at the application and every year I go, have I got A the time and B the money to pay for this? Because I'm I'm at that stage where I'm earning enough to pay for it, but I'm not earning enough to afford to pay for it. Yeah. And that's that's where I am sitting at the minute. And it's like, I want to do this. I know this is beneficial. I know this would help, but I just can't afford that. So I, I think I'm going to miss out in my career further on because I can't do that educational piece of paper that we're talking about. But I can't afford not to do it either. And, and you sort right. of in the middle. Now, I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of the responsibility that the universities have as institutions within Belfast and Northern Ireland afield. You know, obviously, back in the day, degrees used to be free and and 
the the fact that it's financial barriers for for mature students as well because obviously you've got a house to run you've maybe got a family I think when you're looking at barriers for why people don't go on and into education it is very age context because like young people don't have they're not running for the most part right they don't have a young family to feed they don't have a house to run they can live in dorms or they can you know in the case of people over here can still live at home right and that is a huge financial um burden for mature students where you don't get the same level of access and for me the the bigger burden was I didn't have a levels right so I had to do an access course through Belfast Met for further education, you don't have the same access to grants and funding than what you do when you go to Queen's. So that first year for me, I got a grant of £800 for the year, right, with two kids. The only reason I was able to do it was because I had had a redundancy package, right? Had I not have had that redundancy package, it wasn't happening. And even at that, I had to give up my car and get the bus in. And there was all of those different things that I had to to try and work around and then obviously when I went to Queen's because it was a package because I honestly I was a single mom so I did get like a a grant for childcare which was a huge win for me because I was able to treat my degree like a job so classes were you know I only had like nine hours of classes but those other hours I was able to go to the library and study had I not have had that and had to get the kids minded for those nine hours, I would not have been able to keep on top of like all of those readings. And so I do think there is privilege that comes with. I just want to add there, Emma, when you're talking about you get childcare, that's what you get childcare for. The childcare that still doesn't put bread on the table yeah. or electric in the box or gas in the pipes. You still got to earn a living there. So, yes, you get childcare and it sounds great. Yeah. But that goes out as childcare. That's exactly. not money yes. in your pocket. Yes. And I know. Still, I... Yeah. It's still, you still struggle. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it's those barriers to people engaging with it, um, which is like why I always say to the younger ones, get it done while you're younger. And and I'm a huge advocate. You don't have to know what you want to do when you grow up. Nobody knows what they want to do when they grow up, right? Even as adults, you don't know what you want to do when you grow up. Do something you enjoy. Do something you're passionate about. And if at 18 you don't know, take a year out and go find yourself. The university is still going to be there, but it is is easier to do when you are younger. But we see, you know, students going into to like law or you ask them like, well, why do you do that? Well, I don't really know what I want to do, so I'll do law. It's like, right, OK. And we talk about the transferable skills. You know, one of the big things that parents used to say to me was, oh, what's the degree in politics going to get you? Does that mean you have to be a politician? And I was like, no, my degree in politics will do like exactly the same as everybody else's degree. It's transferable skills. I can condense papers into an argument. I can write a thesis. I can, you know, write policy briefs. I can, you know, I can conduct research. I can have a debate and an argument. And like, that's what your point of your degree isn't knowledge on a particular subject. For some degrees, you know, yes, it is. Like if you're being a doctor or whatever else, but do something that you love. Do something you're passionate about. And then it won't just be as hard work. I'm just thinking, you know, when you talk about these issues and I'm, I'm thinking about the educational struggles and, and the work you're doing with the Phoenix Centre, what are you noticing about mental health in East Belfast, particularly among young people? And also, what have you noticed in terms of transgenerational trauma relating back to the troubles? Are those two things coming together at the moment or are they separate or what's your feeling about that? 
they're still very separate. And I'm really glad you touched on that transgenerational trauma because that's something I've mentioned. I feel like I'm banging my head on a brick wall when people say, oh, but 25 years post Good Friday Agreement and people should have moved on. I was like, we have not addressed so many root causes of issues. That trauma then creates a new generation of trauma where young people who never experienced a bomb, who never experienced a you know, being evacuated, had no recollection of the troubles. They have trauma because their parents were traumatized, right? Or, or had experienced trauma. And so them, their parents have that trauma in them. And that is how they have parented. They're parented through survival. And we have a whole generation of young people who will continue to pass that trauma down to their young people because we have not dealt with a lot of the issues that exist. In terms of young people and mental health, and you user probably be well aware of the statistics around young men and, and suicide. We have some of the highest rates of suicide across all of Europe for our young people and our young men. We have some of the highest rates of domestic violence and violence against women in all of Europe. Second only to, I think it was Poland. Um, and if that doesn't tell you something about the fabric of society, um, that it should worry you. I mean, we really need to identify what is causing them. We can't just get that's, that doesn't happen to us. Because in working class areas where we have more problems of mental health issues, drug addiction, um, alcohol dependency, drugs dependency, we're having kids collapsing in schools right now because they're taking spice in their vapes, right? There is an issue that is epidemic within working class communities. And so some of the politicians, particularly the Tories, are like, well, we can't throw money at this problem. I've heard them say Northern Ireland gets more per person, per capita, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, yeah, because we're a post-conflict society. We have a higher rate of people who have mental health issues, who are scarred from things they've seen, witnessed, experienced. Um, and so we have this whole conversation. I'm really encouraged by some of the young people who speak so publicly and openly about their mental health challenges. And I really applaud young people that are doing that. Um, I do sometimes feel like the stigma is really still there and ingrained in the older generation and particularly in in older men and let's let's say men who were affected by the troubles because it's not sexy to talk about it nobody you know it's we don't really talk about that it's like nobody really talks about bruno you know nobody really talks about about this and um, but in small circles people will know who's struggling and like people have came to me before and said Am I'm really worried about Joe Bloggs here or X? Like, is there mental health training that we can do? Is there something that we can do? And you shall know yourselves. Counseling waiting lists are horrendous unless you can afford to pay for it. And again, you know, that is a whole other, a whole other issues, you know, touching on our waiting lists and what that looks like. But they're, if you have to be able to afford to pay for counseling, then who are you utilizing until it gets to breaking point? Yeah. You know what I mean? You're talking about mental health and the, the, the transgenerational trauma. I mean, I know, I mean, Monday coming is the anniversary of the Shankel bombing. Um, it, this time of year gets really sort of tight for me. It, it brings back a few memories and I, I know then the impact that it has on my friend circle and my family circle in the area. Um, the build up to it and just, we don't talk about it, but we all know what's happening and we all sort of are, are slightly different in, in our own skins about it. And, 
but I know that I've passed that on to my boy because he knows this time of year it's not a happy time, you know. And I know that I've done that, and that's just on the surface. So I don't know what other impact that, that that's had on him. Uh, but, but we do this, and then we don't talk about it, and we don't deal with it. And I was talking to somebody today about grief counselling, and they were like, "Oh God, you think that'll work? Like, you need to give it a try." Because the first thing you need to do is ask for the help, and then you need to wait. You know yourself, and then they give you the twelve weeks because they think they're going to cure you in the twelve weeks, which is never going to be sufficient in any shape or form. And that's if you have the same counselor every week, if you're lucky enough. Because sometimes you change counselor, and you've got to start from square one again, and, and they ask you the same questions. Again. Yeah. yeah, and then you're opening up again, and it might take you like I am. Um, I never thought that I would have talked to anybody about my own grief and my what I needed to go to counselling for, and I only did that during COVID. And I, you know, and I'm in my forties. Like, you know, I only was like, nah, I don't need to talk about something. Did I? And I didn't realize until one of the counselors, I'd had a counselor years ago and I went to one session. We did not gel. I did not get on with her. And I, I was like, this is a waste of my time. But one thing I always remember that she said was, your grief is like an old fish that you've put behind the curtains or behind a radiator that you're trying to bury. There's only so long you can hide that smell for. And that's what it's like whenever you're trying to push it down and push it down. And I think you touched on something a little bit there as well in terms of commemorations. Within the loyalism community, we always get these really negative perceptions of they're commemorating people, right? And and that is a way of processing the trauma that's happened. I mean, Usual has spoken to people who have had people shot, kidnapped, and other things. And especially when you're talking about the Shankar Bomb, you know, those, those monstrosities that people witnessed, that they went in to try and help ordinary people, you know, stand by the wayside, went in to try and help survivors then and and pick up the pieces afterwards, which I think, you know, that leaves that leaves a, um, an impact on somebody's mind. But even aside from the the conflict trauma, when we look at the poverty and the deprivation, the lack of social housing, the lack of support around mental health, the lack of help with addiction services, all of those other issues, right? They just compound onto the po- po- poverty and create more issues. I actually uh, think, uh, I mean, let, sorry, Sam, I, I think, you know, the conflict probably, although um, you know, poverty, under-resourced communities, deprivation, that's been compounded by the legacy. I think that was already, it was obviously already there before the, the conflict. I think the conflict then compounded that and then yeah. it's been recompounded. So I don't think, you know, I think we can look at things through a post-conflict lens and yeah. we have had this, you know, sort of big period of history, but we'll have to remember the traumas that people experienced before there was violence. You know, people who, you know, didn't have money, didn't have clothes, didn't have the resources. That that existed in areas like the Shankill, East Belfast, as much as it did in the Falls and yeah. the Bogside and the Craigan. So we're looking at a society and, a, and, and communities that have gone through this horrific period of history, and it is working-class communities that have been affected 100%. most by the yeah. violence, but they were already being affected by poverty and inequality before that even yeah. happened. And they're and and I really hate it when people go, oh, but they're resilient. We need to build people's resilience. I'm like, do we or do we need to actually help them? Stop telling people they need to be resilient and give them the tools that they need to survive. Like my first house, our toilet was outside, and I'm I was born in the 80s, so like, you know, that that wasn't even 
pre uh, pre conflict. But and I remember speaking to my granny. My granny lived in a two bedroom house when she was growing up, and I always used to say to her, "How was there fourteen kids in a two bedroom house like down D Street? What high?" And she's like, "Well." My mummy and daddy was in one bedroom in a double bed and the babies were in that room with another double bed. And then in the other bedroom, there was two other double beds with the boys in one and the girls and, and it was top and tail, right? And I think that we don't really, like what you said, Gareth, sort of talk about that poverty that already existed. But the the I think where we have the conflict on top of that in societies, it really honed into, you know, the flags are on the lamppost. We can physically see now, like, it's very different when you go into a housing estate as opposed to driving down the Belmont Road or somewhere else, you know, that, that you wouldn't class as, like, working class. Um, but the other thing I wanted to touch on too is there has been, like, this top-down approach to, um, oh, well, we need to pull these, we need to make these areas better. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to attract investment into them. So, you you know, we're going to gentrify these areas. No, gentrification is not a good thing. Gentrification pushes people out of the areas that they live in. And that's happening on the Newton Arch Road. It's happening in East Belfast. I live in a housing estate, social housing. Three bedroom property is £900 a month, private rental. Who can afford that, right? Certainly nobody from the area that's even working. Even if you have a job, how can you afford, if you're a single parent family, how can you pay £900 a month? We have the Newton Arge Road that people are talking about. We want to gentrify it. We want to do this. No, people that live there don't want that. Ask us what we want. Ask the people that live there and use the area what they want because they're being priced out of the areas that they grew up in. And this was something I'd mentioned to a group I'd spoken at Shankill as well. I know they have the build um initiative around all of the vacant stuff um, and they're trying to encourage building on those different plots of land but we have to be really really careful in how we say that we want houses on those plots of land because it has to be social housing for local people who live there but I think in the PUL community we are not very good at putting our name on the housing executive waiting lists we're like we'll stay at home and then we worry whereas I feel like in the nationalist um, republican communities they're very switched on. Get yourself onto the housing executive waiting list once you're 18. Show the demand for need in the area. Houses will be built. We are not very good at doing that. And we need to be better at holding our politicians to account. We don't want to gentrify an area. What we want is socially affordable homes for families who have lived there for generations to continue to stay in that area and not be pushed out because then you have the breakdown of the community, you know, and, and you can't then have community groups because... You don't know your own neighbours. And I think what you're saying there, Emma, is right. Sometimes we also bring in these investors and they create jobs. But what jobs are they actually creating? So they're they're creating jobs in the IT sector. And and who for? Yeah, because they're not, the, the, the skill base isn't there within the community to fill those jobs at the moment. So what we need to do is actually give the children coming through the school system the skill base to occupy the jobs that we're going to be creating. Yeah, but we need to also be careful how we're doing that because we've had big charities, helicopter in the areas. Mm -hmm. They suck up all of the funding. They don't have the networks and connections to actually deliver at a grassroots level the hardest to reach people. And they, they can go to the big funders. They can go to grant, uh, you know, governments and say, we are going to deliver this. And because they're seen as safe hands, they are given millions of funding. Whereas grassroots local community organizations 
Oh, we need to see you spend 5,000 before we'll give you 10. We need to see you spend 10,000 before, right? So for an organization like Phoenix, for us to be able to hire staff, for us to be able to financially and strategically plan for the next five years, we need to have secure funding. But because we're the new kid on the block, we've got to apply and jump over all these hoops. Whereas the bigger groups who are seen as safer hand, they have to come to us, like small, not just me, but other smaller groups in the area and say, can you send people onto our courses? And we're like, yeah. well, but we're trying, we've got our own ideas. We're developing this ourselves. Why? My mum worked in a community a community group up on the Shankle for years and every year she had to reapply for her own job because mm-hmm. the funding wasn't there. Yeah. I mean, that, that was okay because there was money coming into the house to support her if, if it, it didn't work out in 12 months time. But every 12 months, if you're, if you're sitting with a mortgage and a child and you're on your own, how are you going to go through that tension every 12 months, yeah. plan for your own job and hoping that you can still carry on your payments? I mean, yeah, there's so much in there to unpack, Emma. And I think there's a lot of lived experiences myself and you have that are going across here. I'm, I'm nodding away, to be honest, at everything you're saying. Cause I'm going, yep, yep, that's, <laughs> that's happened to us. Yep, that's, that's me. Yep, yeah, that's us. So I guess what? the bigger question is then what do we do about it? Yes, it is what? that. And it's, it's how do we tackle this? I'm really interested when you're talking about the Newton Arch Road there because if I mean I know I know there's a lot of changes going on in the Newton Arch Road and I've watched it develop over the last number of years as an outsider, but as somebody who has friends in the community, um, and I remember talking to again it was talking to David Irvine years ago about the, it was the Titanic quarter at the time actually which hadn't been built and there was this whole fear there'd be gentrification of 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 that part of East Belfast and you know there'd be unaffordable housing built for for people and, and that type of thing what what is happening on Newton Arge Road what's your perception of it as a as somebody who lives in East Belfast um it, it's exactly that outside investors who've been buying up the vacant property and just collecting it so they're collecting it for specifically that reason investment they're thinking down the line we're 10 minutes from Belfast City Centre. It's a really good transport. Like we do have good connectivity in terms of buses um, and things like that. And so it's like, well, we could put all of this, uh, these apartments here, right? But that's not giving anything back to the local community that have lived there. It's creating tension with the local community who have lived there. Because then these new people move in and they go, we don't want your band parades marching up and down here. We don't want your flags on your lamppost. And when a community is feeling threatened or at risk, that's when they react. And it's like, well, why should we not commemorate X, Y, or Z? Or why should we not be able to celebrate our culture or, you know, insert whatever whatever paraphrase you want to there? Um, and so that's what I said about the breaking down of the fabric within the community. Because when you've got a lot of, I'm hesitant to use the word outsiders, right? Because I don't want to come across like that we're not welcoming of outsiders. Mm -hmm. There is plenty of people that come and live within the community and engage within the community. My worry is that these big investors are just going to bulldoze the different shops that have been lying vacant and empty for years where communities need space. Communities need the resources. Communities would love like, I know several groups that would love to be able to have the site to build a a community centre that they could then share. You know, there is a need for um, space work for young people, especially to go at weekends, because if we look at Belfast City Council and their community centres, 
they're shut on a Saturday night. Like what youth provision cannot offer youth provision on a Saturday night and on Friday night they shut early, you know? And so, especially when we're looking at the New Nards Road and the trouble that happens around, um, you know, the the uh, the eatery establishments in there and anybody local to the area and youth workers in the area will know that, you know, you usually have a group of about 30 to 40 kids who are causing a little bit of chaos. They have nowhere else to go. For the most part, they've nowhere else to go. When I was growing up, Avenue Leisure Centre um, used to do a summer scheme every year. And I honestly can't remember how much we had to pay, but it wasn't very much because my mum didn't have any money. It was like about a pound for the week or something like that. Um, and so once you were in first year, that was when you knew you'd made it because you weren't delayed into the summer scheme until you were in first year, right? Um, and you could go on the trampoline in, swim in, play badminton, all of these other things, right? Avenil is a shell of what it used to be. It has um, football fields. Um, that's it. Okay. Now, the rationale behind that is that Templemore Baths is open and there's a gym there and there's a swimming pool there and then up at Lisnashara. Kids don't travel that far. Yeah. A, sometimes they're not allowed because their parents will say, right, you've got to be between here and here. This is this is the area that you're allowed to live in, right? Or this area you're allowed to go in. But there's all of those other issues that... I feel like those conversations about strategic development of the Newton Arge Road are happening at this higher level. And it depends who you know, whether or not you get in that. And it's conversations happening and about us, not including us and not, you know, us just not being at the table. And I don't mean us as in me personally, because I don't live on the Newton Arge Road, but I'm, there are groups, community groups that live on the Newton Arch Road and operate it and try to make it a positive place to live. And they do a lot of really um, great work, especially around the interface areas at challenging times of the year. Um, but bigger groups don't necessarily engage because they have their own vision of what they want, what they think the people of the Newton Arch Road should want. And that for me is a class problem. Yeah, I mean, I know I've right up in Newton Arch Road quite a bit now. Um and I can see the microbreweries, and I can see was it the bagel shop at the eight pound a bagel or pizza shops eight pound for a slice yeah. of pizza banana yeah. block yeah, yeah. and, and I'm, I'm sort of looking going yeah, that's, that's all nice but the houses in behind that in D Street there in Lower Newton they're not paying that kind of money for that kind of stuff so who no, is frequenting these that's basically what I was getting at because yeah. for me it's perplexing to see it's not a clash of two communities but almost like a community operating within a community and it's almost like as you but said it's not even a community because yeah. the people like that banana block the charity you know yeah that's a belfast charity yeah um who have substantial experience behind them of doing x y and z they again you know i have met with a few people and spoken with a few people um and they have their own plans and ideas of what's going to happen in there but it's a lack of engagement. It's a lack of knowing actually what's already happening on the ground and in, and partnering with people on the ground to offer better initiatives. They've just went, this is where the funding is because this is an area of multiple deprivation, yeah. right? So oh, there's absolutely. huge funding there. Yeah. So let us go in. We're going to do this because we're good people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and it, it's that saviour complex almost. I'm like, we don't need to be saved. We can save ourselves. Thank you yeah. very much. It's 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 that it's like part. That's what I'm trying to phrase it as. It's like almost like not a community within a community, but almost like a enterprise being parachuted in and trying to impose its will. And I'm not talking about the banana block specifically here. Yeah. I'm talking more generally. Impose yes. its will about on on the community that surrounds it. Yeah. 
And you made a really good point there for me about the idea of, okay, so what, what stage does it get to where people are saying, we don't want those parades anymore, but those parades have been going on for generations. It's, it's a, it's part of the fabric of the Newton Arch Road and in race Belfast. So, but I mean, I'm, I'm going to put my guessing hat on here and guess that a lot of the people who are involved with these different enterprises would have a lot of contempt for loyalist culture. And that's, I'm, I'm going on experience. I have interacting with some of these people in previous, in a previous life. And I know they've got contempt for loyalism. I know they've got contempt for loyalist culture. Um, so to me, it's an interesting dynamic where they're sort of, you know, trying to sort of, as you say, it's almost like a savior complex, but what, what is there to actually save? Okay. If you're going to integrate into the community and make it accessible for people in the community and bring them what I was saying earlier, bring people along with you, not mm-hmm. impose your will and your vision yeah. on people because that's, that's a historic community that, that has been exactly. there for generations. And there's a culture there. And and especially if we look at, you know, and I'm going to mention something that's contentious, but it's not contentious, bonfires, right? If we look at bonfires in East Belfast, we used to have them on all of the 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 roads and then men in the areas in different community groups worked with Belfast City Council to identify places that weren't main roads and place them on those. So there was smaller number of bonfires collated into bigger bonfires. Belfast City Council are now like, well, these bigger bonfires are contentious and are, are a problem and we want to divert. So we have the diversionary funding from Belfast City Council. We want to divert away from these, right? And I've went back to Belfast City Councilor and the councillors, anybody that listens to this will know, we are not interested in diverting people away from their culture. Yes, we can have conversations about the antisocial behaviour that is around some of the sites. Some of the sites are well run. Some of them don't have structure. And that is a, an area that we need to regulate ourselves better on. We don't need Belfast City Council coming in and telling us, here's how you need to support and learn your culture. Because we are the people that do it every year. And that if it was any other culture other than loyalism, would it be accepted or would it be challenged on the grounds of equality? Because why should we not celebrate our culture in the same way other groups do, right? Why should we not celebrate our culture? But we'll get the typical comments from people going, flags and bonfires aren't culture. Okay, so as you, as an outsider, why can you tell a group of people what is their culture and what isn't? If it was another group, would you tell them what their culture was? Culture is invented. A culture can be created tomorrow. So this idea that, you know, that isn't a culture is nonsense because yeah. I could start a culture tomorrow. If I've got enough people to buy into it, it's a culture. I mean, it's it's a nonsense, you know, and okay, the bonfire culture has developed and, and changed over the years from what it was. And, and it's transitioned yeah. from a lot of those negative things. You know, yeah. we don't have shows of strength anymore. And there's been a lot of work on the in the background, but certain councillors think that, you know, you snap your fingers and this happens overnight. Communities aren't invested in to do the work. And then come May, everybody goes, oh, now we're going to talk about bonfires. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I, I built bonfires as a boy. <laughs> and I said this on, on the Echo Chamber many moons ago when I first appeared on it, that People like myself build bonfires and we're not, we're not evil and I'm not sectarian mm-hmm. and I don't sell drugs and, you know, all, all the other things that come along with that loyalist tag. It's, yeah. it's what we did. Now, because did I know what I was doing at the time? It was what you did with your friends. Yeah. And the bonfire ones that I work with now, you know, we talk to them and it's like, why do you do it? Right. Because they're out rain, hail, snow, whatever. Yeah. Right. They were out collecting from February this year. Right. And I'm like, what are we doing? Like, 
but I have nothing else to do. It's a wee bit of crack. I get to spend time with my friends. We can stay up all night. We'll have a bit of crack. For me, that's that audience where then I can then go and we've had conversations around mental health, around drugs abuse and things like that. So for me as a trainer, it's really beneficial because they're in one place, right? Yeah. There, I also recognise that, yes, sometimes there is antisocial behaviour because we have a group of teenagers who have nothing to do and nothing, do you know what I mean? So, yes, like what Gareth said, we have moved on in a lot of the negative types and a yeah. lot of bonfire groups are regulating themselves in terms of what goes on, what the size is, what they offer, you know, all of those different things. But council can't dictate to a community what happens, and that's regardless of what council across Northern Ireland, they can't get dictate to a community how they celebrate it. I mean, I'd also say that antisocial behaviour happens with or without bonfires across the world. Years. You know, yeah, yeah, fair enough. There might every now and again, if you if you build a focal point, build it, and they will come. As Kevin Costner once said, you know, it, it's it's there. But again, if you do it right, if you if you engage with those doing it, because I found it a bit of a rite of passage growing up. That I was allowed to go and clack for the bony. That, that, that was the first. You're old enough now. Yeah. yeah. And then I was allowed to stay out overnight and guard the bony. You know, it was it was a rite of passage. I got up, I was I was four doors away from my front door, and my mum could keep an eye on me. But I thought I was a big lad, and I, I understand where it went later on with the shows of strength that we're talking about and the super bonfires. And we have got so much better at looking after that. And everybody always focuses on one or two bonfires to cause a bit of con- consternation for everybody. And we're like going, but these are bad. How many bonfires are taking place and nothing happens? You know, families turn up, watch a bonfire, there's a bit of music, there's bouncy castles and food trucks and we, we get on with our night and we have a we have a good time and family and friends come together around that time of year and they engage in it and they go home and n- nobody's house has caught fire, nobody's got hurt, nobody was chased up the street with sticks. It, nobody was burnt out. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 the, there's so many, I'm not going to say good ones, but there's so many take place with no incident. Yeah. And then we get one or two to have an incident and all of a sudden everybody's demonised. And what, what you're saying there is right. Once we start telling these young lads they're bad for collecting bonfire wood and gathering around that bonfire, sometimes they just live up to that that label. They feel like they have to. And I was, so I'm part of a group in the Craigie as well, you know, like in my spur time. <laughs> I am, I volunteer. <laughs> Your spur time? I, yes, I know. <laughs> and uh, last year, so not, not their past, but 2022, uh, Craigie Bonfire had flags, other things up on it, um, and we were crucified in the media around the world, right? And it was a few people put things on, and it was all around the protocol, which, you know, we're not going to talk about, but all of these other things, right? And whenever we decided, we came together as a community group, and we were like, we don't want our young people to be vilified like this, because we know them. Like, the, for the most part, the ones that I um, work with at the minute have been in my daughter's class the whole way from three. So I know that they're not bad guys, right? And a lot of the times they're just having a bit of banter and a bit of crack, right? So like in times, sometimes they think that, that this is, I don't want to say funny because that's makes it not serious, right? But there's these other con- misconceptions, right? So we decided, right, let's work with them for a year. Let's see, like, we met with them on a weekly basis from September and we done training with them. So we offered OCN qualifications through Phoenix Education Centre and funding that we had received and through Urban Youth Project in the Craigie. And we developed, de- delivered OCNs in active citizenship, OCNs in community development, OCNs in substance misuse. And we did another one and it 
can't remember what it was, but we done all this work. We brought in the local PSNI officers to give a talk around, um, you know, what happens if you're stopped and searched because sometimes when they're collecting for the bonfire, they've been stopped and searched and things like that, right? So we were trying to encourage that. Um, and part of that was for the bonfire this year, we worked with the young people and we said to them, look, here's our goal. We don't want to be on the media. We don't want any flags, no effigies. We want to show that our bonfire can lead by example and that we can have a really family friendly event where we can't have somebody accusing us, accusing us of being like hate filled or sectarian or whatever else. Right. That was a year long project for one group of like 12 young people. Right. And it worked really, really well because this year we had no flags, no effigies, no nothing. And I met with councillors about this, so they'll be well versed. And I wanted to roll that out. So we've got a couple of other bonfire groups now on board for next year. But that's a process that takes time because we're encouraging the young people to use their voices in a positive manner, to do positive work within their community. And I don't know if you have worked with teenagers, but sometimes teenagers don't know what they want and they can't articulate that they don't know what they want and they want different things different weeks, right? So we we were putting this weekly training on and then for we had a couple of weeks off and they're, they're messaging our WhatsApp group, Miss, Miss, when's our next training on? We're all bored. And I was like, well, what do you want? Like, what, what do you want? Like, you st- I can't tell you what you want. You just need to tell me and I'll try and find a funding or a course. Or, so we're like, we had first aiders and all and they're like, we don't care. We just want to come somewhere. It was one night a week, half eight to 10 o'clock. They just came around, had pizza, learnt a wee bit about their culture, learnt a wee bit about, you know, active community, what it meant to be an active citizen, what it meant to, you know, share your voice and be positive within your community and all those types of things. And that really made a difference. And one of those young men actually said to me, I don't really know what I want to do when I leave school. I don't really think I want to go to tech or anything like that. But with the stuff that we've been doing, I'm really interested in youth work. Well, I was just so proud. I felt like, I felt, I know he's not my kid, but actually for him to have sat and thought about that and to think that he wants to have positive impact on other young people who have had similar experiences, I was like, we've accomplished something with this. We really have. Gareth, <laughs> Gareth jumps in there. I was about to say that if you train that group of 12, 20 kids in that bonfire, the following year, you don't need to do that because they're training the kids that are coming behind them. Yes. By so example. Yeah. Next month. Exactly. So all you're doing is creating those mentors that then cascade the knowledge down year after year after year. Yeah, I mean, that, that. I was just going to jump in on a similar point. It reminds me of the thing that the Act Initiative did with the Open University, which after the trouble at um, Lanark Way, where they did this project called, I think it was called Why Riot, and it was bringing in some of the young fellas who'd been involved in the interface um trouble act initiative brought them in they got funding from the open university i think it was and they did a project with some of the ex-prisoners in in act and sort of talked about you know what are the motivations for doing this why why do you actually want the riot what look at the effect it'll have on your future opportunities all this sort of stuff and uh try and sort of harness that energy and as you say then they can become peer advocates basically for their their mates and say well actually stop and think before you get involved in this because it's going to affect the rest of your life because you might not feel like you want to do like say youth work or whatever now but eventually you might want to do that and what you do on this evening could affect your opportunities going forward so i think it's really important to give that peer peer yeah. empowerment basically 
And that's about so much more than just bonfires and culture because so we did drugs um, and substance misuse um, and we talked with the young people about obviously the drug epidemic that's in East Belfast and wider field, right? And we had some very open and honest conversations with people that were in the room about lived experiences. And the young people actually were very switched on in terms of that's not the route that they wanted to go down. And what they wanted to do was they weren't really interested. They just wanted to play football, right? And so again, you're giving them the knowledge of the impact as well as the practical skills like signposting, who can you go to for help and all of those other things. Um, And they can then become those peer mentors. It's the same for mental health. It's the same for a lot of different topics. Whereas young people feel empowered, well, I know a little bit about that. So my friend's struggling and I might not be able to have the conversation, but I know who I can turn to or I know, listen, I'm not the best person to talk about this, but say if you go to X, Y or Z, I've spoke with them before or I've done a course with them before. They're dead on. They'll be able to signpost you. And it's about that trust. And and again, I don't like increasing capacity terminology because we all have capacity, but it's about increasing who has access to that knowledge almost and making sure that people who need it can access it. It's all very well and good printing out and having these resources on the internet. But if young people don't have internet in their house or don't have a device on which they can research things, you know, then they're not they're not saying that's they're not saying the stuff. Yeah, yeah. I know what you're saying there about it's not about increasing the capacity because they have it. But I think it's about unlocking Yeah the capacity for them to, to, to use it yeah. and, and spread it. I think what I'm going to take away from this tonight, Emma, is that we're, we are still positive within our communities. We are we are still capable within our communities. We just need the resources to help ourselves. And we can do it very well when we're given the resources. Exactly. Um, yeah, we, 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 we can thrive. We, we don't need people to tell us what to do or come in and do it for us. Just give us the resources. We'll get on with it ourselves and we can do this. And we can show what what it is to be a loyalist in a positive light because I think, as you said earlier when we were chatting before this, it's a demonised word now. And I, and I have I have consciously over the last few years sort of made sure that I keep saying I'm a loyalist because I want people to identify the Sam that they know who's a nice guy, that he's a loyalist. So that's what a loyalist actually is. It's not this, this media-driven sort of caricature of what they think we are wearing our Union Jack vest and dragging our knuckles with shaved heads and whatever else the Belfast Telegraph put in it that day. And um, that's why I also openly identify as a loyalist female because I, and, and somebody that I worked with before messaged me and told me, you really shouldn't do that publicly because you're too intelligent to be a loyalist. Oh, <laughs> heckles. How's that work? Yeah. How's that yeah, and that and that's it. We we need to show people that being a loyalist isn't a criminal element. It it is a it's a subculture of unionism if you want to look at it. And as I I've, I've said before in plenty of these pods, it's a working class ideology. It's it's grassroots and it's where we come from. It's a social identity as well as anything else, and that's what we are. Um, and it, there is a lot of positivity around us, and there's a lot of intelligence around us, and there's a lot of capabilities around us. Emma, I, I want to thank you for coming on today because I'm actually leaving this pod tonight extremely positive. Um. Yeah, it, it gives me a great deal of hope that within our our communities, we we are going to make it because we we have the ability and we have the people to do it. So keep doing what you're doing. You've inspired me tonight. Yeah, thank, thank you, you, Emma. F- fantastic, you. really fascinating as as always. Thank you very much for having me on. Not a problem. We'll speak soon. Bye thank now. You. Bye. Bye.